Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of February 1st, 2024. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Vikings Descend on Golden for Annual Old Grass Festival by Corinne Westerman for the Jeffco Transcript. Parking Management Company to take over downtown Golden this spring. City Discussing Daily Enforcement Increased Parking Rates by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. Five Ways to Protect Yourself from Viruses This Winter by Nina Joss for the Canyon Courier. Arvada Crime Brief's car crashes into Safeway. Arvada Crime Brief's bounty hunter's car crashes into Safeway. Sergeant Nelson is not calling you. Man making purchases with counterfeit bills is not, quote, a fugitive recovery agent by Riley Dunn for for the Arvada Press. And following up with various articles. Vikings Descend on Golden for Annual Uller Grass Festival by Corinne Westman. The festival might be named for the Norse god of winter, but Uller apparently took the weekend off to enjoy the beer, music, and camaraderie at Golden's Parfit Park. Over the January 26th through 28th weekend, thousands enjoyed the sunny weather and 50-degree temps at the annual Uller Grass Festival. Many attendees donned Vikings-style clothing, helmets, and bushy beards for the occasion. The event, which started in 2015, brings breweries and bluegrass bands together every winter. The weather has been delivered on its namesake in the past, including last year's snowstorm that forced attendees to move into a heated tent. But this year's attendees made the most of the mild weather with juggling, a costume contest, and other fun activities. Parking management company to take over downtown Golden this spring. City discussing daily enforcement. Increased parking rates by Corinne Westerman. If all goes as Golden officials hope, parking downtown will get a little easier this spring. The city has drafted a contract with Interstate Parking Company of Colorado to manage all its downtown parking spots, enforcement permits, and related operations. The city council will vote on the contract at its February 13th meeting, and if approved, Interstate Parking will take over downtown operations April 1st. The contract period is set for three years, and counselors will receive regular updates to review performance, city staff confirmed. In mid-October, Golden sent out a request for proposals and received six responses. Five of them were fee-based, but Interstate Parking offered a revenue-sharing model. The Denver-based company manages parking for several Colorado municipalities, including Morrison and Idaho Springs, where it has similar revenue-sharing agreements. 
Interstate Parking also demonstrated the most flexibility and responsiveness to Golden's needs, staff members described at a January 23rd City Council work session. Under the proposed contract, the city will receive the first $250,000 in annual revenues from paid parking, permits, and enforcement. After that, the city and the company will split revenues 50-50. Meanwhile, interstate parking is responsible for all related expenses, such as installing new kiosks, employing parking ambassadors, etc., Steve Glick, assistant to the city manager, emphasized how the proposed contract would ensure similarly or more revenues while reducing city expenses and alleviating several problems simultaneously. For instance, by hiring an outside company for parking enforcement, city personnel will be free to address other issues like code violations along the Clear Creek Corridor, Gluick said, and city manager Scott Bargo have said. Also, as Gluick has said before, Golden's current parking system is cobbled together with different systems and vendors, so having everything under the interstate parking umbrella should be easier for users, he said. Golden officials have heard frequent complaints about residents having to re-register their vehicles every time they park downtown but they should only have to do so once under interstate parking. Additionally, the city and interstate parking plan to offer free two-hour downtown parking to any Golden resident registered in the parking system. After the two free hours, residents could then purchase additional time as needed. Gluck emphasized that residents would have to be registered with interstate parking to access this new benefit. Increasing enforcement prices. While these details haven't been finalized, city officials have discussed expanding downtown's parking enforcement from weekdays only to every day. City staff stated in a January 4th memo that this would, quote, ensure management and operational consistency with the 10th Street corridor, as downtown Golden grows more popular. Principal planner Matt Wimp clarified in an email that if city council approves it, Two-hour free parking and paid parking throughout downtown would be enforced from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day. Additionally, because much of the city's parking regulations and costs haven't been updated since 2017, WIMP and other staff members have recommended increasing fines and parking rates. The current rates are $2 an hour after the first two hours with a daily maximum of $8 a day. To adjust for inflation and increased expenses, staff has recommended increasing parking rates to $2.50 an hour after the first two hours with a daily maximum of $10. Wemp said these details and others would be decided at the February 13th meeting. During the January 23rd work session, Mirabi recommended the city have some kind of grace period as people get used to the new system. How long it lasts would be up to the counselors, but he suggested, quote, at least a few days of warnings for people to get used to the new system. For residential and employee parking permits, Murby believed the current ones would be transferred to interstate parking system and it would be responsible for issuing new ones and reissuing updated ones. Overall, he believed interstate parking would be very accommodating and responsive to the needs of residents and other users, such as issuing guest parking passes and expanding enforcement for holidays and events.
Five Ways to Protect Yourself from Viruses This Winter by Nina Joss. This time of year, it seems like just about everyone comes down with some kind of illness. From sore throats to stomach bugs, the winter always seems to come with a vengeance of viruses. Dr. Ming Wu, family medicine physician in Advent Health, Littleton has seen a dramatic uptick in viral illnesses in recent weeks. Flu, COVID, I definitely have positive cases in my clinic, he said. But beyond that, just viral illnesses that can't be identified. Wu said there are millions of viruses, but doctors tend to only test for a handful of specific ones. With viral illnesses generally rising among patients in the winter months, Wu said there are steps you can take to strengthen your immune system. Although it's hard to entirely prevent illnesses, these tips can give you a better chance of fighting off infection. Wash your hands. Wu said practicing self-hygiene by washing your hands is one of the best ways to prevent getting a viral illness. Viruses are spread through airborne particles, sneezing, coughing, those kinds of things, Wu said. Touching a surface exposes you to all of those particles, viral particles. For a virus to infect a person, it needs to contact a mucous membrane, Wu said, such as your mouth, nose, or eyes. If you touch a surface and then you eat a piece of food or you brush your nose, anything like that, it exposes those viral particles to the mucous membranes, he said. If you're able to wash your hands, keep your hands clean. You're not exposing yourself. Keep your distance from sick people. Although many people associate the term social distancing with COVID, Wu said this practice can help a person stay healthy no matter what viruses at play. If someone sneezes in your face, you have a higher likelihood of getting sick than if you're six feet away and someone sneezes, he said. He said that people who are sick can help protect their community by wearing a mask, even if they do not have COVID. Although it is not as common in the United States Wu said when masking when is when sick is part of the social contract in many other places of the world. Quote, if you are sick and you wear a mask, you are protecting your neighbors, he said. You are helping prevent the spread of illness in the community. Health experts also often recommend that people should stay home if they are able to avoid infecting others while ill. Get rest. To keep your immune system strong, rest is crucial, Wu said. Proper sleep and rest allow your immune system to kind of recover from the day, he said, by giving it time to replenish white blood cells to recharge the immune system. He said lack of sleep puts your body under stress, which can weaken your immune system. Stress has been shown to prevent your immune system from working as well, he said. If you're exposed to a virus, it is more likely you will get sick because your immune system is not as strong as it could be. Drink water. Staying hydrated is another important way to keep your body strong to fight illness, Wu said. Think of water as the highway that allows everything to travel, he said. If you are not properly hydrated, your immune system cannot travel to the places it needs to go. Water carries blood cells and elements of the lymphatic system throughout your body, Wu said. He said many physicians recommend drinking 8 to 10 glasses or 64 to 80 ounces of water per day. But more important than following strict number guidelines, Woon said, people should listen to their bodies and drink water when they are thirsty.
Eat a balanced, healthy diet. Although there are no individual foods that have every nutrient, Wu said it is important to eat a balanced, healthy diet that provides all of the nutrients your body needs. Vitamin C, which is found in grapefruit, oranges, broccoli, strawberries, and kale, enhances the immune system and is an antioxidant. Wu said some studies have shown that very high doses of vitamin C can help improve and shorten viral symptoms. Vitamin A, an inflammatory anti-inflammatory substance that helps antibodies respond to viruses, can be found in carrots and spinach, he said. Wu said vitamin D can help strengthen the immune system. Going outside and getting sunlight, 15 minutes of sunlight three times weekly. Your body can produce the vitamin D that it needs, he said. But believe it or not, here in Colorado, vitamin D is actually chronically low. I've seen a lot in my patients. In addition to spending time in the sun, people can also consume salmon, fortified milk, mushrooms, or vitamin D supplements to boost their levels. Beyond vitamins, Wu said some studies have shown that probiotics can help stimulate the immune system and promote the good bacteria in the gut. In doing so, probiotics can help with nutrient absorption, Wu said. Specifically, a probiotic called Lactobacillus casei has been shown to reduce the number of days a person is sick. You can get that through yogurt, kombucha, live culture cheese, or taking a probiotic pill, he said. A lot of vitamins and minerals that are required for proper immune function can be found in various foods, but no one, no one food has them all. That's why, Wu said, it's important to make sure you are consuming a variety of healthy foods and staying away from processed foods when possible. Quote, eating the healthier foods will be more beneficial, he said. I know in our day and age that is sometimes difficult with our running around trying to do what we can, but just doing what you can when you can is always more beneficial than not. Arvada Crime Briefs Bounty Hunters Car crashes into Safeway. Sergeant Nelson is not calling you. Man, making purchases with counterfeit bills is not... Quote, a Fugitive Recovery Agent by Riley Dunn. A man posing as a fugitive recovery agent is actually a fugitive himself, according to the Arvada Police Department. Arvada Police are looking for a man in his 60s or 70s making small purchases with fake $100 bills at businesses around town since September 2023. Sometimes the man identifies himself as a law enforcement agent looking for a wanted person. It is he, in fact, who is wanted. The man has been seen wearing a black tactical vest with fugitive recovery agent markings and a neck badge, as well as handcuffs and possibly a firearm. He's reported to have white hair and a thin build. Police believe the man is working with a younger white female accomplice with long brown hair and tattoos on her right leg. The pair have been seen leaving businesses in a silver 2002-2007 Buick Rendezvous with a temporary license plate. Anyone with information pertaining to the phony bounty hunter may contact Detective Dwayne Eaton at 720-898-6757 or duane at arvada.org. He is a real law enforcement officer. Watch out for that car. 
Around noon on January 20th, the Safeway at 7561 80th Avenue got an unexpected visitor, a white Honda Accord. The driver mistook the gas pedal for the brake and struck a vehicle in the grocery store's parking lot before crashing through the front doors of the Safeway, according to police reports. There were no injuries in the crash, and the building was found to be structurally secure. The driver was cited for careless driving. More fake cops. The bounty hunter is not the only, the quote, bounty hunter is not the only person in Arvada impersonating a police officer. A scammer has been impersonating APD Sergeant Ryan Nelson, trying to defraud people out of cash. The scammer, who uses the phone number 720-593-6673, asks folks for money to, quote, take care of a warrant. No one from Arvada police will call and ask for money, according to APD. A tale of two robberies. Two unrelated robberies committed by as-of-yet unidentified suspects occurred between January 17th and 21st. The first happened around 10.43 p.m. January 17th on the 5100 block of 64th Avenue when two suspects entered a business and pulled a knife on the employee working before fleeing in a vehicle. Mountain View Police located the suspect vehicle after it crashed at the intersection of 41st Street and Tennyson Street. At that point, a female suspect was taken into custody, but a male suspect fled on foot, according to the police report. After an extensive search by members of Denver Police, Mountain View Police, and Arvada Police, the male suspect was not located. APD is still investigating the case. Another robbery occurred around 1 p.m. on January 21st in the 6300 block of Sheridan Boulevard. Two suspects entered the business to buy cigarettes. When the employees set them on the counter, a suspect pulled a gun on the employee, took the cigarettes off the counter, and the pair fled. Neither suspects have been identified. Crime data. In the week of January 15th to 21st, 209 traffic stops were made, with 109 drivers cited. 35 arrests were made, with 28 individuals taken into custody and 7 released on summons. Of the 126 crime reports, there were 7 motor vehicle thefts, 9 shoplifting incidents, 9 vandalism incidents, 4 cases of fraud, 6 drug offenses, and 7 DUIs. Lakewood City Council approves water and sewer rate hikes and other fees for 2024 by Joe Davis. The rising cost of living in Lakewood now includes a few increases that the City Council recently approved. Lakewood Water Utility and Lakewood Sewer Utility customers will see higher rates in 2024. The council also approved fees for vacant property owners along with new registrations regulations. According to City Engineer Ray Hill, Lakewood Water Utility has been anticipating a 5.2% rate hike since 2021. Quote, the increase was given to us by Denver Water, Hill said. The utility gets water from Denver Water, Hill said. Denver Water passed the increase on the customer. The increase overall 
flow follows a study that was provided in 2021 by one of our consultants, Hill said. Then they looked at our utility comprehensively and recommended that the increase be at that level for 2024. All parties agreed that the increase was appropriate. According to Hill, payments to Denver Water account for 75% of the utility's expenditures. Hill did highlight improvements that will take place in 2024, such as replacing meters throughout the utilities system and water system improvements along West Colfax between Pierce and Sheridan. All of those projects will be covered by the new increase. The increase will show up on May 2024 bills. A typical family customer can expect about a $4.03 increase on that bill, according to Hill. According to Hill's presentation on the rate hike, Lakewood Water Utility provides water for about 800 residents in the northeastern part of town. 20 other utilities provide water to the rest of the city. For more information and a complete list of rate increases for Lakewood Water Utility, check out Ray Hill's Water Rates presentation on the city's YouTube page. Lakewood Sewer Utility will see a rate increase in 2024 as well. The increase is primarily for operational costs incurred by the Metro Water Recovery District for the cost of treating wastewater, Hill explained. According to Hill's presentation on the sewer utility rate hike, the wastewater for 7,000 customers flows into city water mains. Those mains are operated and maintained by Denver Metro Water Recovery District, which also treats that wastewater. About 64% of the costs of operating the sewer utility goes to Metro Water, according to Hill. He said customers can expect about a $6 rate hike on each bill. The increase will appear on April 2024 sewer bills. To get more information on the complete list of rate increases, check out Hill's sewer rates presentation on the city's YouTube page. Other rates and changes approved were for non-residential property owners. If the property in Lakewood is vacant for more than 30 days, it becomes subject to the vacant property ordinance approved in 2023. According to that ordinance, Chapter 15.03 of the Lakewood Municipal Code, vacant non-residential properties must be registered every six months by the owners. A fee of $700 accompanies every registration. The resolution also establishes an $800 fee for any emergency calls that the police and other emergency services have to make to the property. Quote, so this is above and beyond any fines that they get assigned through the legal system for violations of law, said city planner Travis Parker. This was specifically designed to make the city whole for costs incurred by continuous service responses to vacant properties, which tends to be a problem. Councilor David Raines noted that separate fees for vacant residential properties will be addressed by the council later in 2024. For more information on the Lakewood City Council meeting, visit lakewoodspeaks.org. Local Voices Revisit a critical historical moment at Wings Over the Rockies. Coming Attractions by Clark Reader When people think of the Cold War, images of nuclear bombs and covert spies are probably among the first images that come to mind. But for Stuart Bailey, collections manager at Wings Over the Rockies Museum, there's something else he likes to focus on. 
The first battle of the Cold War was won by the Western Allies and was won with airplanes, he said. Not only that, but those airplanes didn't have guns or bombs. Instead, for 11 months, the Allies worked to support a city of 2.6 million people entirely by air. End quote. The story of that battle is told in the Air and Space Museum's 7711 East Academy Boulevard in Denver, New Exhibit, the Berlin Airlift, Supplies from the Sky. The exhibition runs through Monday, May 27th, and marks the 75th anniversary of the airlift. The exhibit tells the story of the nearly year-long effort by the United States, Britain, and other countries to keep the people of Berlin alive during the Berlin blockade when the Soviet Union blocked the Western Allies' railway, road, and canal access to the sectors of Berlin under Western control. At the beginning, the Allies were using any kind of plane that could handle cargo, and there were some accidents and a lot of confusion, Bailey said. Eventually, it got better, and the efforts were extremely efficient. There were planes coming in with materials like coal, on average, of every three minutes, end quote. The creation of the exhibit is largely due to donations from two families who had members who participated in the airlift, including Denver resident Thomas Moss, who was a C-54 pilot during the events. His daughters, Barbara Drury and Linda Lewis, donated many of their father's artifacts to the museum, and that provided the backbone for the stories told in the display. Quote, This exhibit isn't so much about the planes and technology as it is about the people and the human experience of what they went through, Bailey said. I think it's powerful because it shows how people's opinions can change. We went from years of fighting the Germans to helping them, and Germans went through years of fearing the sound of Allied planes to finding hope in it. As well as donated artifacts, the exhibit features a lot of photos and creative set dressing to give just a taste of what being in bombed-out Berlin would be like. The aim was also to make it interactive for all ages, so it includes activities like weights and balance exercises and more. In addition to learning more about a historical event that many people believe might not be aware of, Bailey hopes visitors come away with a greater appreciation of the many ways the Berlin airlift influenced the ensuing decades. One of the key takeaways from the exhibit is that freedom is something to be valued and supported, he said. In many ways, the airlift still echoes through our world today. Tickets and details can be found at wingsmuseum.org. LSO uses Peter and the Wolf to enchant young audiences. Get ready for some family fun at the Lakewood Symphony Orchestra's annual children's and family concert, which will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 3rd at the Lakewood Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway. Not only will it feature Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, as it does every year, but also, quote, add story and play where the audience will create a story with several characters, develop a plot, and choose music to go along with the story. Then the narrator, Joe Hillen from CBS4, will tell the brand new story while conductor Matthew Switzer leads the orchestra, performing the music an audience has chosen to go along with the story. Information and tickets can be found at lakewoodsymphony.org. Sink into Walker Fine Arts Nomadic Daydreams. 
There are few times during the year when the relationship between man and nature is rich and nuanced, and it is during winter. This makes it the perfect time for the opening of Walker Fine Arts 300 West 11th Avenue, number A in Denver, first exhibition of 2024, Nomadic Daydreams. The group show runs through Saturday, March 16th, and features the works of Angela Belowen, Derek Bridenthal, George Cosman, Bonnie Lodka, and Ben Strawn. According to provided information, the artists use two-dimensional mediums like oil, photography, drawing, to explore the all-important interactions between man and nature. Find all the details at walkerfineart.com. And Clark's Concert of the Week, Lydia Loveless at Globe Hall. Lydia Loveless, who hails from Columbus, Ohio, is a songwriter's songwriter. Over their career, they've delved deep into the rather nebulous alt-country world. And in 2023, they released Nothing's Gonna Stand in My Way again. As usual, it's an astounding collection of songs chronicling a breakup and the struggle to find a way to move forward in a difficult world. In support of the record, Loveless will be performing at the Globe Hall 4483 Logan Street in Denver at 8 p.m. on Saturday, February 3rd. They will be joined by singer-songwriter Jason Hawk Harrison, alt-country up-and-comer Cousin Curtis. Get tickets for the concert at globehall.com. Clark Reader is an arts and entertainment columnist for Colorado Community Media. He can be reached at Clark with an E.reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, With cold and snow on the way, Denver plans to open warming shelter 24 by 7 as part of pilot program by Rebecca Tauber. And East Denver Hale neighborhood homeowners would have easier time building ADUs if City Council approves a rezoning plan by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Do Coloradans Really Think They're Midwestern? The Results Are In, by Hannah Metzger. And Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Director Talks Strategy, Dudley Brown Status, and Going Broke in 2023, by Chris Perez. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. With cold and snow on the way, Denver plans to open warming shelter 24 by 7 as part of pilot program by Rebecca Tauber. Denver plans to open its emergency warming shelter at the Denver Coliseum this Friday, but it will be a shift from how the city has offered safety from the cold in the past for unhoused or unsheltered people. The shelter, located at 4600 North Humboldt Street, will be open 24 by 7 starting 3 p.m. on Friday, February 9th, through 9 a.m. on Friday, February 16th. Low temperatures and snow are expected to hit Denver this weekend. People needing shelter are encouraged to walk right up. Previously, the city would usually open emergency shelters for a few days at a time when temperatures were forecasted to drop below 20 degrees. The new 24 by 7 approach is part of a new pilot program from Mayor Mike Johnston's office, prompted by proposed legislation from a group of city council members. 
Cold weather poses a serious danger to people who are unsheltered, Johnston said in a statement Thursday. We've heard city council's desire to stand up additional cold weather, weather shelter when temperatures reach 32 degrees, and this pilot will allow us to determine the viability of doing so next winter. The bill sponsors put the ordinance on hold to work with the mayor's office on a pilot program expanding cold weather shelter access. I'm thrilled to see it go forward, said Councilmember Sarah Peretti, who co-sponsored the bill along with Councilmembers Chantel Lewis, Paul Cashman, and Council President Jamie Torres. We will be working closely with city agencies to assess what emergency sheltering parameters, hours, locations, and so on, work best to get people inside at the appropriate 32-degree threshold. The expanded program could see even more people seeking emergency shelter this weekend as hundreds of new immigrant families time out of city hotel shelters, many with nowhere to go. Johnston vetoed a second bill last week that would have banned encampment sweeps during freezing temps. The proposal was narrowly approved by city council. Johnston said it would practically overturn the voter-approved urban camping ban for four months of the year, while some city staff and council members in opposition worried about the logistics of implementing such a policy. Other council members, activists, and health care experts pushing for the bill said that forcing people to relocate in free- freezing temperatures raises the risk of frostbite, amputations, and death in cold weather. Parati said that people experiencing homelessness might be more likely to head to cold weather shelters in freezing weather if they knew their belongings would be where they left them when they returned to the streets. Despite his veto of the second bill addressing shelter removals in freezing weather, I hope the mayor will keep his word and refrain from removing tents when the temperature is freezing, Parati said. Without assurances that their tent, sleeping bag, and other possessions will remain where they left them in the morning, people will be less likely to utilize this option. East Denver Hale neighborhood homeowners would have easier time building ADUs if City Council approves a rezoning plan by Desiree Matherin. Homeowners in the Hale neighborhood will be able to build accessory dwelling units, ADU, a little bit easier if Denver City Council approves a proposed rezoning for the area next month. The Land Use Committee passed the legislative rezoning this week that would allow for ADU construction in the neighborhood. It will go before City Council in the upcoming weeks, and there will be a public hearing on the matter tentatively scheduled for March 26th. The rezoning would apply to about 1,500 properties. The neighborhood is mainly zoned now for single-unit housing, and that would remain the case if the rezoning proposal was passed. Councilmember Amanda Sawyer is spearheading the proposal. She's already rezoned the East Colfax neighborhood in her district to allow for ADU construction. Residents in the Montclair neighborhood in her district indicated they had no interest for such rezoning. For the Hale neighborhood, Sawyer and the city's Community Planning and Development Department held several several in-person and virtual meetings regarding the proposal and sent out a survey ultimately receiving about 50% support for the proposal. About 382 people responded to the survey, and around 212 of those responses were considered valid. About 124 people were in favor, 78 were opposed, and 10 were undecided. 
As for public comment, CPD said that they received four letters of support, one person had a general comment, and 18 responses were in opposition. Some of the main concerns in the neighborhood regarding the proposal were changes to neighborhood character, increased traffic and trash, and less available parking. Folks were also concerned with what an increase in housing density would do to the area and possible increases in short-term rentals. But just because a neighborhood is rezoned to allow for ADUs doesn't mean the ADUs will be built. About 30% of the city, mainly on the west and northwest side, is currently zoned to allow for ADUs. Individual homeowners can and do apply for the rezoning, but that can be a time-consuming and costly step, which legislative rezoning eliminates. Since 2016, Denver has issued about 456 ADU construction permits and, as of November 2023, about 331 of them have been completed, Business Den reported. According to CPD, ADUs aid in preserving neighborhood character because houses aren't being turned into multiplexes. There are also guidelines in what types of ADUs can be built that are dependent on lot sizes and neighborhood characters. So homeowners could not build an ADU larger than their home or four stories high. ADUs can be used for short-term rentals, and that's part of the point in touting ADUs as a housing option for Denverites. They can be used to house additional family members or be used for supplemental income. An ADU can be used for short-term rentals, but only if the property owner lives in the main house, a rule that is applied across the city. In June, the Department of Excise and Licensing said Denver had about 2,552 active short-term rental licenses and 170 are in ADUs, or about 6%. Renting ADUs, whether long or short-term, is part of the city's 20-year plan for how Denver should look, feel, and grow. ADUs are meant to help curb gentrification and displacement. What the rezoning doesn't do is make the actual construction of an ADU accessibly affordable, which is another barrier to increased usage in ADUs. During Tuesday's committee meeting, Sawyer noted that while community response to the proposal was closely split, a slight majority favored rezoning. We're proud to be moving this forward. We recognize that it might be a little bit contentious, but that's okay. That's democracy, right? Sawyer said. Sawyer previously said she wouldn't be looking into other neighborhood ADU rezoning proposals in the immediate future, but instead wants to start implementing the proposals in the recently approved Near Southeast Area Plan. But CPD is looking into it. CPD said they, they will begin working with City Council on a potential zoning code amendment that would allow ADUs across the city. That previously wasn't an option, but in June, City Council approved an ordinance amending the zoning code and the former Chapter 59 code that allows more flexibility in building an ADU. The ordinance clarified and standardized rules for ADUs, taking into account different lot sizes and shapes and how neighborhoods differ in terms of layout across the city, CPD said, which makes the possibility of citywide rezoning possible. That project will kick off in the spring with many community engagement meetings and would ultimately be decided by Denver City Council.
The following articles are from Westward. Do Coloradans really think they're Midwestern? The results are in, by Hannah Metzger. What region is Colorado located in? It depends on who you ask. At least, that was the conclusion of a survey that threw the state into a full-on identity crisis a few months back. The October poll asked 11,000 people in 22 states if they live in the Midwest. The results revealed self-proclaimed Midwesterners in every state surveyed, from Pennsylvania in the Northeast to Idaho in the West and Arkansas in the South. But Colorado particularly captured the nation's attention, as 42% of the residents of this state said they considered themselves living in the Midwest. The revelation inspired local and national publications alike to ponder Colorado's regional status. Some condemned Coloradans as geographically challenged, while others questioned whether the state's census designation as a western state outranks its stereotypical Midwestern tendencies, like overusing ranch dressing and having an abundance of cows. The collective confoundment convinced the pollsters to take a closer look. In late January, the Middle West Review Journal and Emerson College Polling asked 2,000 Coloradans whether they live in the Midwest, the Great Plains, or the West, expanding the sample size and providing more options to choose from. Now, the results are in. Most Coloradans agree with the state's census class classification. 65.1% of respondents say they live in the West, according to the new poll. But 26.2% still maintain that Colorado is part of the Midwest, and 8.8% say they live in the Great Plains. These two large-scale surveys demonstrate the strength and persistence of Midwestern identity, and they help us to better see the boundaries of the Midwest, says John Locke, editor-in-chief of the Middle West Review. The Western character of Colorado shines through in this new poll, but so does a Midwestern identity in the areas next to Kansas and Nebraska. There is less of a Plains inclination in Colorado than I expected. Coloradans in the eastern half of the state, with more flat terrain and open plains, were more likely to identify as Midwestern. But when looking at the results by zip code, the Midwest identity extends even to the furthest west reaches, including Montrose County. Nearly all respondents who say Colorado is in the Great Plains live in the eastern half of the state, however. Young people disproportionately call Colorado the Midwest. Of respondents between 25 and 29 years old, 43.8% say Colorado is in the Midwest, as do 39.1% of respondents aged 18 to 24. Only 11.2% of those 70 or older identify as Midwestern. Perhaps the most damning finding for the Midwest truthers, the more educated they are, the less likely Coloradans are to identify as Midwestern, according to the poll. While 43.9% of respondents whose highest educational achievement is a high school diploma or less say Colorado is in the Midwest, the percentage continuously decreases for those with technical certificates, associate degrees, and college diplomas. In the most educated group, people with postgraduate degrees, only 13.1% say that Colorado is in the Midwest. 
The new poll also reviewed three states that are designated as part of the Midwest by the census, Missouri, Ohio, and South Dakota. Around 90% of respondents in Missouri and Ohio call themselves Midwestern, but more than one-third of South Dakotans say their state is in the Great Plains or the West. At least Colorado isn't the only state with an identity issue. Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Director talks strategy, Dudley Brown status, and going broke in 2023 by Chris Perez. This is Colorado's Second Amendment Alamo. That's the current battle cry for Rocky Mountain gun owners, which bills itself as the state's only no-compromise gun rights organization. This could be a major make-or-break year for gun owners, says RMGO Executive Director Taylor Rhodes, noting that Democrats are gearing up for an anti-gun push in the Colorado legislature, even as his organization is filing challenges to laws past and present. In addition to watchdogging legislative action, the RMGO is fighting an assault weapons ban in Boulder County, Superior, and Louisville, a three-day minimum waiting period that's being appealed in Colorado's 10th Circuit, a 21-and-older purchasing requirement that's being fought in U.S. District Court, and a magazine ban passed into law in 2013 that RMGO filed suit against in 2022. Last month, RMGO also filed a legal challenge of Colorado's ghost gun ban prohibiting the transport and possession of unserialized firearms. I mean, you have to be blind to not realize gun owners are under attack, Rhodes says. They have made it extremely clear, the Democrats, that they do not want gun owners in Colorado. They're actively passing legislation to make it harder to acquire guns, they're making it harder for gun shops to do business. On February 5th, the Senate Judiciary Committee held the first of many gun control hearings for the year, according to RMGO, with discussion of SB 24003, a bill sponsored by Senator Tom Sullivan that centers on the Colorado Bureau of Investigation's authority to investigate firearms crimes. Sullivan, who could not be reached for comment, is also sponsoring what RMGO calls a backdoor gun registration bill that will be heard by the Senate Business, Labor, and Technology Committee today, February 8th. That bill, SB 24066, calls for the enforcement of a firearms merchant category code, which would require a merchant acquirer or a payment card network to track the purchases of firearms and ammunitions using the new Merchant Category Code, MCC, intended to help identify suspicious activities and gun traffickers. This bill is extremely dangerous and will be the beginning of many radical gun control bills that the Dems want to pass this session, RMGO warned in a February 5th email to members. The gun rights group has the support of 200,000 people in Colorado, according to Rhodes. 35,000 of them are full dues-paying members. Founded in 1996, RMGO was first led by conservative firebrand Dudley Brown, who stepped into a presidential role with the group's, group's parent organization, the National Association for Gun Rights, in 2020. Now it's Rhodes who brings the patent-like approach to RMGO and its gun crusade in the Centennial State. We're going to fight like hell, 
until our last dying breath, he says. The University of Southern Mississippi grad joined RMGO in 2018, serving as a lobbyist for the organization before taking over the role of executive director. He's credited with leading successful efforts to block the 2020 School Shooter Protection Act, the 2020 Required Reporting of Lost Stolen Firearms Bill, and mandatory firearm storage requirements. Brown's controversial exit in 2020 came after a string of losses for RMGO-backed political candidates in years of Brown ruffling even Republicans' feathers with his no-holds-barred tactics, such as campaigning to get GOP State Representative Cole Wist ousted from his seat in 2018 after he co-sponsored a bill that gave judges the authority to issue extreme risk protection orders, allowing cops to confiscate firearms from people who are determined to be risks to themselves or others. According to Rhodes, it was Brown's decision to step away from the executive director role at RMGO and go with Rhodes as a replacement. In the fall of 2019, he asked me if I would be interested in taking a leadership role, Rhodes remembers. I did not know what that really meant until about February of 2020. He comes back and says, look, NAGR needs me to take a more hands-on approach. I don't have the bandwidth to lead RMGO and NAGR at the same time. Would you be okay with running the group? So we didn't want to shake things up in the middle of an election cycle. I think it was in July or August of 2020, but I was essentially running things from that February on. Describing Brown as a mentor, Rhodes says he hasn't strayed far from the founder's original plans for RMGO. I joked early on when I took over, well, the board didn't like him because he wasn't conservative enough, Rhodes says. Obviously, anyone who knows Dudley, they're like, that's a load of shit. Not even close to true. The reality is our parent organization, the National Association for Gun Rights, is growing extremely rapidly. We are the second largest gun rights organization in America behind the NRA. And because of that, Dudley has taken more of a hands-on leadership approach with the national organization and has handed off the reins to Colorado to me. A lot of the things I'm doing are derived from the strategy that he has used forever, Rhodes continues. We approach things with a no-compromise position. Some of the carryover tactics from Brown's tenure include firing off barrages of legal complaints regarding recently passed gun legislation and pouring money into court cases rather than the legislative season. Since RMGO is a nonprofit organization under Section 501c4 of the IRS Code, Rhodes is able to continue Brown's approach of moving money legally from the group to the Super PAC in order to hold bad politicians accountable through court filings. We have done it for years, Rhodes says. What they haven't taken into consideration, and really where our legal strategy lies, is there's a code in our law that says if I sue over civil rights violations, which we are suing over, and I win, the state and the government will then be responsible for paying my legal fees if we motion for that, and we certainly will. I can then legally transfer that money, which at some point, hopefully, we're talking about several million dollars, I can transfer half of that money into my super PAC and go after these bastards and make them pay for what they've done for us on our Second Amendment freedoms. 
Still, the RMGO director admits that mounting legal fees led to tough financial times last year that prevented the group from taking on the ghost gun ban at first. Right around December, our bank account was looking very sad, Rhodes confesses. We had legal bills out the wazoo related to our five active lawsuits. I honestly didn't know how I was going to pay the staff right before Christmas. We had a legal bill due, and our members stepped up in a huge way and began supporting us. We didn't miss payroll. We didn't miss the attorney fees that we had to pay. Our members really killed it for us, and I couldn't be more thankful for their support. RMGO has won a handful of cases in the past, Rhodes notes, including one related to an attempt in 2010 by the Colorado State University to ban concealed weapons permit holders from carrying on campus. CSU later dropped the ban and the lawsuit was dropped. The group is still in the early stages of its other lawsuits. What we're doing right now is going to change the trajectory of Colorado and gun rights as a whole across America, Rhodes says. He describes the legislation that RMGO will be fighting for the rest of the year as being unconstitutional since it seeks to ban semi-automatic guns, mandatory registration of guns, background checks for ammo purchases, and even limiting the number of guns a citizen can purchase, he says. I know if an assault weapons ban passes, we've talked to literally dozens, if not hundreds, of gun shops that say, look, we can't do business here anymore. We're going to pack up and go to Wyoming or Kansas or Utah or somewhere that will not hinder our business, where we can earn a living and put food on our table, Rhodes tells Westward. This is our Alamo. This is our last stand. It's a fight that could take years, maybe even decades, Rhodes says. Right now, it's a waiting game. We're in it for the long haul. Whether it takes us four or five years to repeal one of these laws, so be it. We'll go all 12 rounds if we have to. I can't promise that we're going to win, but I can promise you that we aren't going to die lying down. Colorado has the most minor political parties in decades. Meet the newest one, by Hannah Metzger. When Coloradans register to vote this year, they'll have nearly a dozen party affiliations from which to choose. Colorado now has eight minor political parties in addition to the Democrat and Republican parties, the largest number in at least two decades, according to data available from the Secretary of State's office. The newest minor party, the Forward Party, was officially designated on January 25th. Nearly 72,000 active voters are registered with one of the eight minor parties as of February 1st, up from only 12,500 minor party voters in 2004. That means just under 1.9% of Colorado voters are affiliated with minor parties, compared to 0.45% 20 years ago. One week into the Forward Party's Colorado launch, seven voters have registered with the party. That's exciting news, says Rich Herman, chair of the Colorado Forward Party. We are building a new political community. The Forward Party is the third minor party to register in Colorado over the last year, following the Center Party in September and the No Labels Party in January of 2023. Before these additions, there were only a handful of minor parties in the state, ranging from three to five between 2009 and 2022, according to voter registration data from the Secretary of State's office. 
But Colorado is now becoming a hot spot for third parties as more and more voters turn away from the Democratic and Republican mainstays. The Green, American Constitution, Unity and Approval voting parties are all official minor parties in this state. So is the Libertarian Party, which got its start in Colorado in 1971, and today boasts over 37,000 members, making it the state's most popular minor party. The Unity Party and Approval Voting Party also originated in Colorado before spreading to other states, and the Center Party is only located in Colorado, as it is not affiliated with any national organization. As recently as 2013, Republicans and Democrats both outnumbered unaffiliated voters in Colorado. But now, nearly 48% of the state's active voters are independents, compared to fewer than 27% who are Democrats and fewer than 24% who are Republicans. Colorado's rising rate of independent voters aligns with national trends, though Colorado is one of only nine states in which unaffiliated voters are the plurality. The others are Alaska, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Oregon, and Rhode Island, according to the Independent Voter Project. Nationally, political analysts say the movement against partisanship is being led by younger voters who are frustrated with the two-party system. A Pew Research survey connected growing political independence to rising partisan hostility, as an increasing number of both Democrats and Republicans view members of the other party as closed-minded, dishonest, immoral, and unintelligent. That kind of disillusionment is what Herman is counting on to attract voters to the Forward Party. Colorado Forward Party is creating a new home for these voters who are tired of partisan leaders more interested in winning political points than serving their constituents, Herman said when announcing the party's designation. Our candidates and sitting officials are committed to civility, fact-driven discourse, and pragmatic compromise for the best interests of the common-sense majority that is increasingly being ignored by the two major parties. The Colorado Forward Party's policy initiatives include implementing ranked-choice voting, making primary elections nonpartisan, and preserving the state's independent redistricting commission. However, the party's main shtick is that it prioritizes general principles and values over specific policy positions. It champions moderation, collaboration, and accountability as its core principles. Any political candidate or official who supports those principles can affiliate themselves with the forward party, even if they're members of a different party. Fort Collins Mayor Jenny Arndt, a Democrat, aligned herself with the forwardists last summer and now calls herself a forward Democrat. The National Forward Party launched in 2022 and has since spread to over 30 states, according to its website. It's led by 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and the former Republican governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman. Yang celebrated the party's Colorado expansion last month, calling it an amazing accomplishment. But forwardists will have to work to maintain their status as an official minor party. At least six minor parties have gained and then lost their status in Colorado since 2004. 
Our three primary goals for 2024 are to grow our membership, fundraise, and attract and support candidates, Herman says. It will be interesting to see the pace at which those members and others begin to change their voter registrations to forward. The party worked for a year to obtain the 10,000 petition signatures needed to become a minor political party.